beautiful songs. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in many ways, in many portions, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. After he had made propitiation for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know. That's a dangerous thing. This morning I want to embark really upon a dangerous journey, a dangerous course of action as we talk about God. I want to challenge all of us this morning to become theologians. A theologian is someone who studies God. So this morning, let's join together as we study God. Now this is a dangerous course of action for me, not for you. It's dangerous for me because this morning when I stand before God in the judgment day, I will have to give account for how I have represented and described God this morning. And I do not want to stand before Him having misrepresented Him. It's a dangerous thing and the wrong thing to begin to say things about God that are not revealed in the Word. But we can err in the opposite direction also and not say the things about God that are revealed in the Word. This morning we want to live in the Word of God. Our central text today is going to be chapter 5 of John. This is a rather long chapter and the last part of that chapter contains one of the most important speeches that Jesus gave while he was upon the earth. In that speech he said many things that refer to the Father and to himself and the relationship that existed between the two of them. Let me give the background for this situation. Jesus had been in his ministry for several months. He and his disciples had been ministering in Galilee, and finally, as they were in Capernaum, the uh, vernal equinox occurred in the first full moon. It was time for the Passover. And so they left Capernaum and traveled to Jerusalem. And as they entered Jerusalem, they made their way to the temple. And there in the temple, Jesus saw something that he had seen approximately 30 other times. Because his family, his faithful Jews, every year had come to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. And what he saw in the courtyard of the temple were oxen and sheep and doves and a table of money changers. And the situation was so, so upsetting to him that he began to take really violent action. You see, the Sadducees, the priestly class, had a monopoly. And if you wanted to offer an ox or you wanted to offer a sheep, or if you wanted to offer a dove. When you brought that to the priest, he would look at it and determine whether or not it was one that had been bought in the temple courtyard. 
And if it hadn't been, he rejected it. It was inappropriate. It wasn't equal for this particular situation. Because you see, the priest got a kickback on everything that was sold. Not only that, if you wanted to bring uh, the temple tax and pay the temple tax, or if you wanted to bring a monetary offering, the only thing that the priest would accept was a Jewish shekel. But all the shekels had been taken out of circulation. And they were all at the table of the money changer in the temple. And so if you wanted to make a financial offering, you had to bring Roman denarius and buy a shekel. And then after you donated the shekel, the priest put it back in circulation and it was sold again. Jesus was irate because the priests, the Sadducees, had turned the worship of God into merchandising and then a means of personal profit. And so John tells us that Jesus made a scourge out of many cords. And he says he drove out the people who were selling oxen. He drove out those who were selling sheep. And notice he says, and then with them, their livestock. He didn't drive out the livestock with the scourge. He drove out the sellers and with them, their livestock. And then he said to those who were selling doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And of course, from this moment on, the Sadducees hated Jesus and wanted him dead. A year later, Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem again for the Passover. This time there was no cleansing of the temple, although Jesus did cleanse the temple a second time in the last week of his ministry. But on this occasion he didn't cleanse the temple, but he still did not avoid trouble with the Jewish leaders. As he walked around the town, the city of Jerusalem, he came upon a structure that consisted of seven arches uh, sustained by large columns. This structure did not have a floor, but contained rather a paved walk. And in the center there was a pool of water. It was the Pool of Bethesda. And the Jews had the tradition that as this water was uh, stirred up, it was a turbulent pool, some type of an artesian well or something, we don't know, but as the water was troubled, the Jewish tradition was this, if a sick person could get into that water and be the first one in, he would be healed. And so this portico dwelling was packed with sick people who were there wanting to be healed. And when the water would rise up and boil up, they would plunge in. And then when they crawled out or somebody helped them out and they weren't healed, well, I guess I wasn't the first one in. Jesus came into that place and saw this horde of sick and suffering and desperate people who were in that place yearning for, desiring, trying to achieve healing. As he looked at the crowd, he saw one man. His eye fell upon one man. And he went over to the man and he said, Do you want to get well? The man said, I have no one to help me into the pool. And whenever the water boils up and I try to get in, obviously someone else gets there first because I'm never healed. And Jesus looked at him and said, Take up your pallet and walk. The man instantly was healed. And he stood up and began to carry 
his pallet. He looked around. Who was the man? Jesus had vanished in the crowd. He had no idea who he was. Later, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, Don't you sin anymore, lest a worse thing happen to you. Now the man knew who the healer was. And so he went to the Jewish authorities again, you know, say it was was Jesus. Because, you see, when he had been carrying his pallet, they saw him and they said, You're violating the Sabbath, carrying a pallet on the Sabbath day. Well, the man who healed me told me to do it. Who? I don't know. I looked around, he was gone. Now he said, I know. And so they came to Jesus, began to attack him verbally. What do you do? Why are you breaking the Sabbath by healing somebody on the Sabbath day? (laughs) And he said, my father has been working until now, and I also work. What? You're calling God your father? You're making yourself equal to God? And so now they had two reasons to kill him. One, because he was declaring himself equal with God in their minds. Secondly, he not only violated the Sabbath, but encouraged someone else to do so. And no doubt the Sadducees said, you know, that's the same guy that a year ago gave us trouble. So they were his enemy, and they attacked him, and they attacked him verbally. Interestingly, in response to that attack then, our Lord Jesus gave this marvelous discourse or dissertation that we find in the last part of John chapter 5. This morning, let's take a look at that, examine some of the truths that come out of the discourse and also come out of the episode of the healing. The first thing that is very apparent to us as we start reading Jesus' speech is this, Jesus was not an independent agent doing his own thing. Notice, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear I judge, my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. When Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, His family had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they had traveled not just Joseph and Mary and Jesus, but others from Nazareth had traveled with them, and relatives had come with them, and so this band of folks from Nazareth traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And after the Passover was over, this band of Nazarites, Nazarenes rather, uh, started a journey back north. And as they got down the road a ways, they looked around, where's Jesus? He wasn't with them. And they went back to Jerusalem and they found him in the temple and he was in the midst of the the Jewish scholars asking them questions. The scholars were having trouble answering and he was answering difficult questions they were posing to him. And his mother said, Son, why have you caused us all this trouble? We were worrying about you. And his response was this, I must be about my 
Father's business. Jesus was always about his Father's business, not his own business. And this submissive spirit that Jesus displayed throughout his earthly ministry set an example that should prevail for us as we seek to serve our Lord. Sermon on the Mount, one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in any language, concludes with a section that some people feel is harsh. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, they were not doing the will of God. They were not doing the will of the Father. They were not submissive to the will of the Father, but they were doing their own thing. And that's striking, isn't it? Prophesied miracles in Jesus' name. And yet, it was their ministry, not the ministry of God the Father. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? I wonder sometimes as we watch programs on television and other places and the circus that's taking place and the glorification of the minister. God forbid that I would judge, and yet it's hard not to. I wonder how many of these are doing their own thing. I wonder how many times have I done my own thing rather than being submissive to the will of the Father. Sobering thought, isn't it? A sobering thought. It's important when we are involved in ministry that we seek to know the will of the Father and do that. One of the things that I so appreciate about John Wimber, and you recall when we were watching John Wimber videos here at TCF and Videos about praying for the sick. And Wimber raised a great hope about praying for the sick. But there was an underlying principle in all that Wimber did. And this is what he said. When someone comes to you for prayer, do not immediately launch into prayer. But stop and you pray and ask, Father, what are you doing in this situation? What are you accomplishing through this sickness? What are you going to accomplish through this healing if that is your will? Now, none of us, I don't think, well, let's say it this way. I know (laughs) that none of us can be perfect in always discerning the will of God in every situation. And therefore, if we can't, we go ahead and pray for the healing. But it is important to know, God, what are you doing here? How can I pray according to your will. And that's what 1 John says. This is a confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. It is important that we be in constant prayer if we are going to be ministers of Jesus, and everybody here is who's a follower of Christ, because that's our role in the world, that when we are moving into ministry, we seek the will of God that we might be doing the will of our Father. James said, Do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment, not only accountable for your life, but what you've taught. Have you taught that which is the will of the Father? The second thing that comes out of Jesus' speech is this. We notice the sovereignty of the Father. When Jesus, early in his ministry and touring Galilee, finally came to Nazareth, on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as a guest teacher. They had handed him the Isaiah scroll and invited him to read the passage for the day. He opened the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61 and read the first verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he began to say to them, Today has this scripture been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom, healing of sight to the blind. The power of God was upon Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 4, we read of an episode that occurred when Jesus and his disciples were itinerating in ministry. They came to the house where Peter lived. And they went into Peter's house. And when they got into Peter's house, they saw Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick with a high fever and in bed. And Jesus walked over to her and touched her hand. She was immediately healed and got up and as a gracious hostess served Jesus and the disciples. Word got out that Jesus was at Peter's house. And so from all the countryside and the environs of of that city, people began to bring the sick toward evening. And they brought people that had all kinds of pains and all kinds of diseases and all kinds of sicknesses, demon-possessed, And it says, Jesus healed all the sick and delivered all the demon possessed. There was no exception. On another occasion, when Jesus and his disciples were itinerating through Galilee, Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 tells us that in that itinerary, he encountered people who had all kinds of pain, all kinds of physical infirmity, people who were demon-possessed, people who were mentally ill. The Greek word there refers to those that are moonstruck, and the belief of that day was that anybody who stayed out and got too much moonshine, not the kind you drink, but the kind that comes down on your head, 
you had mental illness. And so that's where the term lunatic comes from, Luna being moon. And so Jesus healed people who were mentally ill. He delivered people from demons. He delivered people from all kinds of pain and sickness and infirmity and paralytics, it says. Healed them all. And now he's in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. And in front of him is a horde of sick people who have come to that place to be healed. And all he does is pick out one man and heal him. Seven times or seven different episodes in Scripture describe Jesus as having deep compassion for the people. He looked upon him and was moved with compassion. That expression seven describes seven different episodes. It just says that more than once because the different Gospels often describe the same episode. But on seven episodes, when Jesus saw the crowd, he was moved with compassion. Here's this deeply compassionate person who cared for people. He had this ability to heal. And yet, he ignored all but one. Why? The answer is seen in Jesus' reply. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I can do nothing on my own initiative. And here we see revealed then the sovereignty of the Father. God is sovereign. God created the universe through the Son. The universe operates according to what we call laws. Gravity, we call that a law because we see how it works. God has established the universe and put those things in it that make it operate as it operates. And so as we uh, earlier noted in Hebrews 1, and Jesus upholds all this by the word of His power. We were created with perfect bodies and there was no disease But because sin came into the world, today our bodies know disease. We know infirmity. Children are born with birth defects. And that is a part of the the consequence of the fall of man. We are increasingly defective generation after generation. And these laws operate. And God usually lets them operate. But there are times... Known only to him is why. He reaches forth and interrupts one of those laws. And what we see, we say, is a miracle. Something supernatural has happened. God has intervened. Instead of saying, why didn't God do this? And why didn't God do that? The proper question is, I wonder why God does this. (laughs) I wonder why God bothered to heal this one. I wonder why God bothered to heal that one. Why did he interrupt the way all of these things work in this particular situation? The reason 
is known only to him. It is in God's sovereignty. You know, we human beings don't like things that way, do we? We want to be able to put it into a box. Boy, give me a formula, some system that I can use to guarantee that God will act in a certain way or make it something I can comprehend with my human mind. And you know, every time we think we finally figured out some kind of a formula, God laughs at us and violates it. Notice the variety of situations in Scripture. When Jesus came to Nazareth, Scripture says he could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Matthew 9:27 we find two blind men coming to Jesus desiring to be healing and Jesus said be it unto you according to your faith and they were healed. And so we decide aha faith is the key. <laughs> if I can just work up enough faith. Now the word that we translate faith is the Greek word pistis which is a derivative of the verb pytho, which means to persuade. Faith is something of which I have been so persuaded that nothing can change my mind. And so, is that really what it is? We figured it out. <laughs> and then God throws us a curve. At the pool of Bethesda, Jesus saw one man. This man didn't know who he was. This man didn't believe anything about him. And Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. He was healed. And then he got up. He did not act on his faith. He acted as a result of his healing. And he had no idea who this man was. You see, it wasn't faith. It was a sovereign act of God for reasons that only God knows why. In Luke chapter 4, verses 25 to 27, when the Jews were talking about the superiority of being a Jew, Jesus said, well, let me discuss a couple of situations with you. There was a terrible famine in the time of Elisha, and in that famine there were many, many widows in Israel who were crying out and praying and having trouble feeding their children. And God sent Elisha to one widow and not a Jew. He sent him off to Sidon to the widow of Zarephath. And there had this cruise of oil and, and the flour and it never ended. Why that one widow when all the others were crying out for help and not even one in Israel? The sovereignty of the Father. Jesus said, you know, in the day of Elisha there were lepers Many of them. And God healed one. Naaman, who was a Syrian. <laughs> and he came to Elisha. The, the prophet didn't even go out to talk to him. And here was this man who came to this church and his soldiers and really thought he was somebody. And he said, I thought he would come out of his hut and he'd stand and proclaim something in the name of his God and I'd be healed. And he told me to go dip in the river Jordan seven times. I have better rivers back where I came from. So he started to leave. And this one servant said, No, Master, maybe you ought to try this. <laughs> so he finally 
did what he was told to do. Dipped once, nothing happened. Two, three, four, five. Oh, this is silly. The seventh time he got out and he was healed. Why? Why Naaman and all the other lepers ignored? It is the sovereignty of God. Something that is beyond our understanding. God refuses to operate according to formulas. I don't know about you, but I was more than just troubled. When we had a speaker in this pulpit some weeks ago say that God has given to man the legal title to the earth and God can't do anything in this world without our permission. I tell you, uh, well, let me just stop. <laughs> what a horrible thing. And we know that's a belief that, that's so strong in this city. And yet it is an absolute lie. God is sovereign. He doesn't need my permission to do anything. <laughs> and if he wants to do something and I tell him no, man, had I better be scared. God is sovereign. A third thing that leaps to our attention out of this speech is the imminence of the Father. In all too many quarters today, the Father is some sort of an unknown entity. Some churches, all you ever hear about is Jesus, and every song is all about Jesus. Other quarters, it's all the Holy Spirit and all the phenomena and so on. In that case, the Father and Son are somewhat absent. You know, the song we used to sing, Father, I adore you. And then we go up and stop. Jesus, I adore you. The Father. Spirit, I... You know, we, boy, we really got there when we got to the Spirit. But the biblical view recognizes the eminence of the Father Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which we quoted at the beginning of the sermon, he is the, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the Father. He, the Son, is exact representation of his nature, the Father. When he had made purification of sins, where did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Father. <laughs> A place of honor. <laughs> But still, the majesty on high was seated here. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. And we've mentioned before from this pulpit that every prayer from Pentecost to the book of Revelation is always prayed to God the Father in Jesus' name in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The eminence of the Father. Jesus is described as our high priest interceding for us before the Father. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. And that wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 describes Jesus as our great high priest who has been touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, but He still is our High Priest interceding before the Father. If you're a priest, there has to be a higher entity 
before whom you are interceding. Scripture also says that when we confess Jesus, it is the Father who gets the glory. Philippians 2.11, At every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about that. The eminence of the Father. And yet, in so many of our churches, the Father is forgotten. When Philip and Thomas were questioning Jesus, as recorded in John chapter 14, Philip, hearing Jesus saying that he was going to go away and he was going to send the Spirit, Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father. <laughs> if you can just show us the Father, that's enough. And Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, all of this is a part of, of what Hebrews 1 says, God long ago in times past spake unto the fathers in the prophets in many ways and in many manners, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus Christ came to the earth to atone for our sins, but He also came to show us the Father. Romans 1 speaks a truth that we all know. You could go out in the woods. You could wander about and see the beautiful trees. You could stand out. By the way, wasn't that a beautiful full moon last night? You can see the beautiful full moon. You can look at the clouds and the stars. You can go see the crashing water over a waterfall. You can see the rocks that at some point have known great upheaval. And you can look at all of these things and come to have various understandings about God our Creator. But you can also get misunderstandings and so you can start to worship a tree or the clouds and so on. <laughs> we have the objective revelation in Scripture, but one reason Jesus came to the earth was to say in the Old Testament, the Father was sort of hidden. <laughs> Matter of fact, you weren't, didn't even know about the Trinity. <laughs> I am here not only to atone for your sins, but to let you see what God the Father is really like. And I am the exact representation of His nature. You see, revealing the Father. Jesus said, who, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. There's some brothers in uh, Minnesota, I'm sorry, Michigan, in which I'm in correspondence and we're dialoguing on theological issues and they really struggle with the concept of the Trinity. And they sent me this book that if you read this book you'll be convinced that we're right, that there is no Trinity. So I started to read the book. Immediately it was obvious the book was flawed because the book began with the Old Testament and after a whole lot of Old Testament, then it started trying to interpret the new in the light of the old. That's a mistake. We need to start with the new where the revelation is full and look back at the Old Testament and say, aha, that's what that's all about. 
the New Testament is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is also the revelation of God the Father to the degree that we have received it from the Lord. Now if we stopped here in our study, we would be stopping at the wrong place. We must not elevate the Father in such a way that we devalue the Son. When we honor the Son, we honor the Father. Verse 23 of John 5, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And as we already noted in Philippians 2.11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. We live in an age in which the Son is in charge. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at His coming, then comes the end, when He, the Son, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When He, the Son, has abolished all rule and all authority and power, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He, the Father, has put all things in subjection under His, the Son's feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, the Father, so that God may be all in all. Notice it said that after Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne on high and upholds all things by the word of his power, this passage indicates that at that time God said, Son, it's yours. Remember that Jesus met with his disciples before his ascension and said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. We sing the song, He's got the whole world in His hands. <laughs> right now, that's Jesus and those hands, the resurrected hands, we assume, have nail prints in them. <laughs> and it will be so until this present age ends. When will that be? Only God knows. He's sovereign. And when it does end, it'll all be handed back again to God the Father. But today, it's the nail-pierced hands that uphold all things by the word of His power. We must not in any way devalue the Son. And when we worship the Son, we are honoring the Father as we worship the Son. That's a beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? That the one who is the very radiance of His glory, the Son, the radiance of the Father's glory. We honor the Father when we worship Him. 
Well, again, we remember that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you worship that which you do not know. It is important that we know what we worship and our what is a who. We must not state things that are not clear in Scripture, nor must we fail to say those things that are clear in Scripture. And so from this passage, we see four truths. Jesus set a model of submitted ministry. He was not a freelance agent doing his own thing, and that's the example for all of us. Number two, the sovereignty of the Father must always be recognized. Number three, the eminence of the Father must be recognized, and we do honor the Father when we honor the Son. Lord God, we are thankful that you have deigned to have Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, dwell among us. We thank you for your great love that caused him to go to the cross and the power of the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you show us how to live. But we're also thankful that this is our Father's world. And as we pray, oh, let us ne'er forget that though the wrong seem all so strong, God is the ruler yet. Thank you for staying in charge. In Jesus' name, amen.